Welcome to tomorrow's Tech Today, bringing you the latest in technology, talent, and transformational change. With me, your host, Professor Sally Eaves. Today, we're focusing on one of the key talking points and challenges facing organizations and people today, that of agility. In theory, it's straightforward. Organizations must implement processes and technology that enable staff to work flexibly and with skills confidence too. However, in practice, becoming an agile business in stressful, complex circumstances, such as a pandemic, can be challenging for many reasons. Decision makers must grapple with digital transformation under the pressure of fast-changing customer expectations. Legacy systems and lack of integration can threaten the very agility that new technologies can help to implement, and employees must adapt to the new skills and resources that today's marketplace now demands. So what is the reality of juggling these challenges, and how can we find a way towards better agility today? To discuss exactly this, I am in great company with Brad Mallard, CTO for Northern West Europe at Fujitsu and a member of Fujitsu's global CTO office, and Nick Herbert, Head of Portfolio, Applications and Multi-Cloud at Fujitsu. Welcome to the show. Sally, lovely. Thank you for, for having us here. It's great to be here. Thanks, Sally. Really looking forward to the conversation. So thanks for the invite and uh, look forward to speaking with you uh, over the next, uh, next 40 minutes or so. So, Brad, perhaps if I go to you first with that opening question. So the importance of becoming agile, we talked about it in the intro. It's being talked about a lot in theory, but over the course of the pandemic and the transition we have now, what do you see as a feeling on the ground? Is it actually a lot more difficult and complex than it sounds? If you look back 18 months, for the first few weeks, and then months as, as COVID sort of rolled out, it was amazing to see how pace and agility kind of come to the fore. The red type red tape went backwards and people formed you know, squads and, and sprinted towards just enabling people to work and function. And that happened everywhere, both in technology and IT terms, but really across the business. And some of the success stories were, were, were where partners, organizational kind of members of all forms, business, shared services, commercial, finance, sales, whatever it be, but would all just, it kind of really epitomized the putting on the same piece of rope and like never before, actually. I think uh, clearly it proved that enterprises and organizations of any size could, could work with the agility and the pace that nobody really believed they could. And from my experience also, the quality of that delivery was second to none. You know, the actual issues received um, were, were were pretty minimal, actually. So it really got kind of gave an opportunity to test. You know, well, what, why why do these processes and why do we work the way we work? Why do why are we organised the way we're organised? And and as a result, I think um, the last few months I've seen more and more organisations kind of really sort of talking different words and use different language, but. It's all about kind of bottling the agility and trying to maintain that agility in their business. I speak to many CIOs and, and business leaders um, of, of organisations of, of many sizes, um, both public and private sector. I think that the issue we have now is the ask of doing more with less is prevalent. And, and effectively, um, we're, we're now at a point where resources and people and the risk of kind of burnout and uh, mental health issues are still really prevalent because people have been at this pace of working now for, for well over a year, if not 18 months. And the issue now is how do how do people how do, and how do organisations 
kind of scale the pace of working and the agility that we've proven we can work at, but kind of really deploy that across uh, as a sustainable means of working for everybody. And that really is the crux of where we're at now. And I think uh, uh, sitting in the middle of uh, middle of 2021. So, Absolutely. It's some great points there, Brad. I totally agree. I think it's shown the art of the possible in many ways through technology, but also people coming together. It's that kind of complementary aspect, isn't it? And uh, yeah, for me, I've just been writing about active intelligence and kind of this more proactive agility that we can keep. And as you were saying, that bottling up and, and using it and scaling it. So some great points there. And um, what are you seeing, Nick, from your role? So I, I think I see similar to Brad that the, the acceleration over the last 12 months has been has been phenomenal. Those kind of projects and to-do list items that have always been pushed down and next year, next budget, not quite got the the, the kind of impetus to do it yet, um, have been unfettered. And, and that that has really driven a transformation and, and an acceleration that I haven't seen before. I think that to, to, to contradict slightly or, or to pivot back slightly, I think it's been done and it's been done well. But I think that I've seen examples where it's been done in, it's in some instances in a semi-unplanned way. Um, I was speaking to a customer just last week who was, they, they've done it, but the way that they got around some of those red tape issues was to use corporate credit cards to, to drive some of the technology funds, um, to use rapid adoption and, and out-of-the-box architectures, maybe rather than plugging into their broader enterprise architecture. So I think that there's, there's still some rapid activity to do. It's great that we've accelerated. I think just those, and I, I hate the, the boring one that talks about governance, I think there are still some enterprise governance controls that need to be put back in. But that should be a wrap-up opportunity rather than something that needs to kind of be, be re, reimagined and started again. I, it's interesting when Brad mentioned the mental health and the people issues as well. It's one that often goes unsaid that the people side is key. And I often talk about skills and the lack of skills, especially as we've accelerated and brought in new programs and new platforms that people need to wrap their heads around. I think that's only been further exemplified through through the last 18 months. Couldn't agree more about that, Nick. I'd love to come back to skills a little bit later on as well. You know, when we talk about agility um, from an organisational perspective, we need that from the individual one as well. So the skills literacy, the skills confidence, et cetera. So we'd definitely come back to that. And that point that Brad mentioned as well, and you picked up on about mental health, I think is a great indication about how expectations are changing as well. And adoption of technology. I, I saw some research just a couple of weeks ago saying how you know, employees were more willing to use technology like conversational AI, for example, to talk about their anxiety concerns and their well-being, maybe more than their line manager. It was really, really interesting. I think we're seeing a lot of expectations and um, experiences changing at the moment you know, with the pandemic, but also outside of it and maybe accelerating trends that had already started and that have just been accelerated through this process. So talking about those expectations in a bit more detail, maybe more from a customer perspective now, you know, what are you seeing? What challenges are you, are you facing with the rise of expectations? and some unique ones that are coming to the fore. What are you seeing there? What's the biggest challenge? And perhaps to Brad again first on that one. Again, if I look now, the, the expectation of consumers and customers alike, you know, the, the kind of the endpoints and receivers of the services organisations deliver. Um, I think, as with many things, COVID and in the wake of corona, that expectation is like, no, like never before, actually. You know, the experience that consumers and customers receive has really, has really changed. You only look at, you know, kind of the the advent of multiple delivery mechanisms of, you know, kind of the the the, the digital approach to, you know, physical digital interface and experiences that have been developed to collect, you know, the click and go, the click and collect kind of experiences for retail and maybe food or even beer outlets during 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 lockdown periods. You know, these 
that this kind of uh, has really, again, accelerated the expectation of people to be able to just consume and get instant realization or kind of last mile delivery of services that are you know, stuff that you previously would have been happy to go out for. So, so I think kind of retail and, and the, the, the consumer expectation of, uh, of instant and always on, uh, I think has been accelerated further. Uh, I think that's one, one big advent of, of what we've seen over the last few, few months in the year uh, or so. And I think that, that kind of it really does test numbers of, uh, of processes, ways of organizations working. It tests business models, it tests processes, it tests people, it tests you know, back-end system scalability and, and you know, kind of maybe there's opportunity to, to, to either reduce cost or to drive more scalability or, or, or potentially you know, kind of accelerate um, kind of back-end systems. But uh, as you mentioned around conversational AI and, and other such, you know, AI has been absolutely prevalent in kind of as a technology to in, enable and enhance the experience. And I think we're seeing more and more kind of a, um, a emerging technologies uh, and innovations and, and R&D in AI of all of, of various different forms, whether that's natural language understanding and conversational AI or you know, kind of actually trying to personalize the experience more through computer vision or other such. So to so kind of think uh, yeah, really changing, continuing to change a pace that I don't think we've seen. And, and I think, but this is the norm. You know, the, the world only ever gets faster. And, uh, and I think people need to be organized and be tapping into the ability to innovate and the ability to tap into R&D of their, their partners, their ecosystem of the cloud providers, the data providers, the API providers of the world, so they can they can really try and improve and give you know, the relevance of experience that consumers and customers really want on the front line, given that changing expectation. Absolutely. This capacity to innovate, I guess we could call it the core competence of, of your of our time, really. And when you were talking about those different technologies coming together, I think recommendation systems would be another one that springs to mind for me as well. It's it's kind of like this age of convergence, I would say, at the moment. It's this true integration of different technologies coming together, and that's having a huge um, impact on, on the experiences we've been talking about there. And Nick, have you seen anything different to what Brad's um, been describing or any other areas we've not talked about so far around this kind of expectation change? and heightening i would argue as well yeah so look i i think it is it, it it's a it's a point at which the limits have been reached i think for some organizations that, that, that i've seen so I, I was i was speaking to a, a ceo last week for um a large logistics organization and and they they've pivoted to more remote working and the fact that they've moved things to, to a much more flexible setup but now they're hampered by the almost the core systems that they have that, that run their business um, they've got monolithic applications. They've not adopted an API economy. They are not got the best kind of user experience when they're, they're engaging with their their consumers, and they're, they're both B two B and B two C. And it's it it will take time and investment to pivot the core. Uh, so I think some some of those edge cases and, and remote working was a great one. The the, the 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 speed that that got adopted was was wonderful. I think the caution is the expectations are now so high that things could go so quickly that they may end up hitting a, a, a wall of reality once we start to unpick some of the more complicated enterprise systems that will, that will need to be changed next to, to, to do the next wave. Absolutely. And another conversation I, I was having just last week was, was about some um, consistency of the experience for consumers as well. So as well as this uh, heightening I was talking about and the acceleration, it's you know that demand for it to be consistent across all the different channels they're involved in. You know, and it's kind of like um, mm-hmm. multi-channel isn't the same as omni-channel. Isn't it? There's, a, there's quite a clear difference there. And you're only as good as that large touch point. So there are these areas that can cause friction and become a gap for that expectation being met. So, so many areas there. And we mentioned about personalization, et cetera, and kind of this 
always on, always on demand, et cetera. So, so, so many things to talk about there and maybe payment habits and things as well, changing so dramatically as well and going into different demographic, demographics, sorry, that we've seen um, to previously as well. So very interesting and dynamic times, I would argue, in terms of this particular area. So for businesses, we mentioned friction there a little bit and the time to pivot that you brought out there, Nick. Um, what would you recommend for businesses trying to navigate this essentially moving target of change? What best practices have you seen and that you do at Fujitsu to help support that? Um, you know, because again, we've got some changing goalposts here, haven't we? So perhaps Nick first. Yeah, sure. So I think for me, the, 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 the key to unlock agility is people. Um, whether it's a, a, a processes are often ones that, that hold people back. I, I was having a, a constant reminder of, of a customer who will remain nameless, but who, who thought they were the fastest, best kind of outfit in, in, in that I'll ever have seen. Um, we were doing a, a maturity review across a number of different factors, and they were they were claiming to be the best in in, in the kind of velocity they've achieved for some of their applications. Um, and, and they were talking DevOps, they were talking containers, and 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 it sounded great until you started picking underneath the hood and, and asking more process-related questions. How, how regularly do you release? How how do you get to the point where where there's code being pushed to to, to customers or to the production environments? Um, and the, the answer is, oh, well, we have to raise a ticket, we go to cab, and then all the impact assessment, all those kind of IT service management processes were getting in their way. They had the best technology, they had the best approach in their ecosystem, but when it touched the other business areas and the other even IT areas, they were being held back by more traditional processes. So I think going, going back to your, your question regarding kind of in, embedding agility and, and being able to, to pivot and move quicker, technology is great and we can we can plug that in, but without people change and process change, it, it, it hits a limit very quickly. Um, so I, I think the best organizations where I've seen, they've started with People and processes as the core of the change. Set a, a vision and an aim of a top-line strategy, where, where it is the business needs to go, empowering their organization to get there and giving them the, the freedom and giving them the funding to get going and maybe giving them guardrails to give them some edges so that they have, I don't know, investment limits or priorities set, but then allowing that to, to, to roll through. If you put a, a load of technology into a, a bunch of people or processes that aren't geared for it, you'll very quickly hit the limits that those people and processes kind of exude back on, on, on the system that you're trying to build. So just building on Nick's point, actually, from, from my perspective, I agree with the process and the tools and the people, but let's drill into people a touch more. For me, if, if we get a bit more specific, there's, there's three things that really enable agility. And I think organisations, uh, or the advent of COVID, when you know, we managed to move mountains in days, uh, maybe hours for some some com- companies and organisations. The essence of purpose, the essence of mindset, and then skills, I think, are the three key attributes of kind of how you unlock agility. Um, firstly, on purpose, you know, one, one of the really critical points of kind of um, organisations unlocking agility is by aligning everybody behind a single single common understandable and relatable goal. And I think the essence of getting organizations to be able to work and getting people back to work or the ability to work or go back to the floor or whatever it might be, or, or even just safely working from home and protecting each other, you know, this sense of purpose is what brought people together and why the essence of people wanting to bottle agility has come to the fore. At Fujitsu, we've put a lot of impact and, and, and re- really reinforced over the last 18 months 
Fujitsu's purpose about driving innovation for societal good. And that means not just, you know, kind of the, the profit and, and performance of organizations, but the general well-being of society and sustainability as it goes forwards. With that, the mindset of people is critical as well. So once you've got alignment to purpose, the mindset of people and changing what often in many organizations is the legacy of people's understanding uh, their roles, the skills they've had over the last 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, sometimes and maybe more for some organizations and individuals, is that you have to unwind learned behavior and muscle memory that of, of that, you know, the skills and, and, and the process and the way people have worked with cloud and DevOps and other such means, you know, people being willing to embrace kind of change and w- willing to test themselves and push themselves to work differently is really the, the, the crux of working at pace and working differently. And that means you're know, kind of driving towards the culture of innovation and driving the skill shift that we that we need both technically, and we use different partners and tools and data to be able to drive that, but also the, the kind of and mental shift in people's minds and we work with organizations to do the software and the behavioral side of skill sort of transformation as well people like um, my navigator an organization in oceana uh, and uh, and david marquette's organization around turning the ship fame and, and leading change uh, and, and leadership is language fame uh, so so these kind of partnerships really help us transform the mindset um, on the skill side i mean it's really critical that organizations embrace corporate-wide and not just not 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 the technologists everybody in the organization having an awareness of data what the opportunity of data brings but also the digital literacy um, level up that i think is essential for organizations to be successful and have a sustainable business model for the future and for them to be a, a successful you know kind of growing uh, and and quicker agile organization which is absolutely key for this adaptability I could not agree more strongly with that, Brad. Absolutely. I know we've spoken before um, about STEAM learning, for example, as well. So giving employees that holistic kind of tool set to grow as they do and ensuring these opportunities around data literacy, as you mentioned, are available for every single role, all levels of the organization, not just technology facing ones. I could not agree more strongly. Absolutely. And also around that importance of unlearning as well as learning as well. I, I think it's absolutely key and goes back with Nick's points as well around the importance of people. So we have to invest at that. Absolutely. And it's, you know, what I do with my nonprofit. So yeah, I could not agree more strongly. I love your points there. Those three pillars you mentioned, purpose, mindset, and skills, absolutely fundamental. It kind of brings us on, I'll bring you back for this next question, Brad, if that's okay, around data. You know, we're we're seeing this phrase all the time, aren't we, about data-driven or data-driven enterprise. It's coming up everywhere. Um, But we're also actually seeing quite a few data paradoxes as well, which I'll come back to in a second. But what was your your kind of overall take about the importance of data right now in terms of, you know, from informing decision making um, and I would say active decision making based on active data uh, and making that available more real time? What are you seeing businesses navigating in that particular area right now? So there's a couple of different lenses on this, actually. So so firstly, um, you know, there, there isn't historic data and trend data that has been able to be used um, with with sufficient ama- mass or amounts of previous examples or illustrative you know, kind of examples for what's happened during COVID. And if you look over kind of the the, the exits from lockdowns and other such, organisations are about to be very dynamic and and creative in how they're looking at their data and finding ways of interpreting data. And what we've seen is, is actually a kind of a strong, a strong trend to kind of micro trends analysis of data and lo- looking at 
kind of looking at that to make decisions in rapid, you know, almost almost real time to be able to make the sort of steer the ship during during the the spikes of Corona over and lockdown over the last uh, last year or so. I think the, the lessons learned from that and the the awareness and the education that that's given to board the directors and managers and line managers alike is that data is now reinforced as being a useful asset and. Uh, and certainly we've seen um, both inside Fujitsu and with many of our customers, the desire to integrate and make accessible and then visualize multiple new data sources and enrich data with, with more uh, with more quality or additional sources to be able to, to inform those decisions. Um, uh, good examples being weather and or current hit rates of COVID in certain locations, whatever it might be, to be able to inform decisions taken from open data sources, for example. So, so this concept of kind of you're kind of building on your data, integrated and enriching data to make decisions, but maybe looking at microtrends with it, I think is something I've sort of seen a lot of businesses really embrace. Um, I've also seen a lot of people who kind of embrace then as they've built kind of um, data sources, data platforms, and it's probably the wrong word because actually there's multiple different architectures of data and how you might access it. But giving the data and making it available to the front line of the business where you've got you're know, certainly kind of power users of people using things like Power BI and other sort of Microsoft or other visualization tools, Click or other, to be able to visualize this and make it more accessible to the wider organization has also been a prevalent trend that I've also seen. Uh, and, and again, you only have to look through the last few months to sort of continue to see how that's been presented to public and citizen uh, and also employees of businesses to demonstrate progress and how people are protected during during the during the, the pandemic, et cetera, as obvious use cases or examples that we can uh, we can bring to life here. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And a great point about the kind of the public narrative around data as well. I think it's kind of brought data analytics um, to a whole new conversation, you know, around the kitchen table, isn't it? You know, all these uh, phrases like driven by the data or mind the curve, et cetera. It's, it's kind of opened up brand new conversations and democratizing data to new roles. Absolutely agree. And are you seeing similar, Nick? Yeah, definitely. And, and the, the last point you just mentioned, Sally, around the, the democratization of, of data, giving access to the right people and, and democratizing decision-making by that process of, of providing data and data insights and access to maybe new decision-makers within an organization, whether it's simple as giving kind of retailers and store managers access to, to things to adjust product sales and adjusting placements and, and, and the way that they they run their business at the edge of the, the, the kind of corporate frame um, or teachers insight to, to student learnings and trends to adjust the syllabus more dynamically to suit each student pathway. I think whichever example you give of it, giving people in, in whether it's product owners, business owners, or, or, or people in, in the fringes of an organization, better access to almost validated metrics to make decisions based on it. Not not kind of, and I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of talking about vanity metrics and, and picking numbers that just sound good, actually giving them meaningful metrics that they can make decisions and, and change the course of whether it's a corporate one or going back to more of a, a societal one. Fujitsu in, in Oceania, we, we work with uh, GE Healthcare, Macquarie University, and a few other partners um, in the, the kind of identification of brain aneurysms through Fujitsu AI from, from the labs in, in Japan. Um, which, in terms of kind of the impact, time consumption, and 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 the the outcome for patients of identifying that early is is I just can't can't be understated enough. Um, and by inserting kind of data insights AI into those real processes, the benefit on the whole is is so big, it's so it's, it's huge. It's not just about increasing profits or increasing margins. It, it's increasing 
kind of societal good, the, the, the benefit of the individual and, and, and extending life in that particular example, it's one that's close to my heart. I love that. Honestly, um, I will come back to you that after after the podcast, Nick, if that's OK, because um, my book's on tech for good. And that, yeah, very much kind of echoes with my heart, that one. I don't think you can have any more meaningful metrics, to use your term, than examples like that. So I think that's wonderful. So yeah, I will come back to you outside of this discussion to talk more on that, if you don't mind. That would be brilliant. <laughs> And uh, and Brad, for yourself, what are you, what are you seeing um, here? From um, let's change it actually to look at some of the challenges. So we're seeing the opportunities here around data, which is fantastic, both for business and for society. And I think ESG would be another example of that. Um, there's a lot of interesting work happening um, in that area at the moment. But what are the challenges of dealing with some of this data? And I think I briefly mentioned earlier on about data paradox, which was some research I saw, which was, for example, on one side showing you know organisations are wanting more and more data but they're really actually struggling to get the value from it because of some of the kind of gaps maybe between technology and the people investment that's come up really naturally in the conversation so far anyway. But I wonder if you're seeing anything else there about, you know, common mistakes to avoid when really trying to get the most out of the data that's increasingly becoming available and can be integrated. So perhaps I'm Brad on that one. So I think there's a there's two, maybe two or three different issues here. There's, there's, firstly, we've talked a lot about skills and uh, and democratizing access to data and uh, I'm a strong believer in this but, but kind of that the level up and the, the digital literacy and kind of giving people awareness and and, and, and access to, to to the right data and enough data for them to be able to to find you know their, their decision making trends or other such and uh, I think it's kind of been something that um, is still overlooked or, or isn't really widely, um, enabled or accessible to to most organisations still today, it's kind of kept within you know fairly controlled bounds or boundaries. Uh, in my experience, I think kind of you know, opening the organisation's data, to, whether that's internal to employees and the front line and democratising access to it, uh, or to a wider ecosystem of p- providers and partners, uh, can only really drive and spark pace. And innovation, <clears throat> and uh, and we'll come on to innovation in a second. But um, so so I think um, I think that that sort of first one's got to be opening uh, access uh, to data and effectively giving people the ability to to tap into it and the skills to be able to leveraging it. I mean, from an innovation perspective and that ecosystem perspective, I mean, both gaining and, and enriching data um, uh, is generally still seen as a a bit of a dark heart in my experience and kind of that, that comes to the essence of trust and who, whose data do you trust? You know, do, do you, you know, when data's inside your organization and within the boundaries of you know, your four walls, your data center, your organization boundaries, um, you, you know that data has been produced and, uh, and, and made available securely and, and stored securely and maybe um, unmodified to certain degrees. There's still a massive question of quality and integrity of data, however, based upon the input sources. But there's, there's a real missed opportunity on bringing data from multiple sources that are outside your organization, but kind of knowing that data, being trusted in that data, being able to secure that data and, and the necessary interfaces to be able to get access to it or enrich all your data sets is still... Um, I think growing, but um, but I think it's still a challenge. Uh, third point of it is kind of architecturally, there's also different patterns. People talk about data warehouses, data lakes, et cetera. Um, generally, in my experience, and, and I think growingly most progressive organizations, there's been a kind of real advent of change through data lakes, data warehouses to data lake houses, and now maybe just data integration across multiple sources to make it you know, an abstract accessible layer or uh, for, for consumption or, or usage in the experience generation 
or the availability of data for others. And um, I think so, so, so kind of um, the changing technology available, the changing architectures, the advent of innovation from cloud providers to be able to bring that into your organization is essential, which means you have to organize and build your data teams with the data skills you need and you know, let them innovate, let them create, let them co-create with your business and partners to be able to really accelerate kind of the, the value you can gain and the experiences you can generate for your customers and consumers and citizens as a result of you know, kind of leveraging that data. I think. So, so, so that's kind of a, a little bit of a flavor of that, I think. I love that. I love the empowerment that came to the fore as you were describing that towards the end there, Brad, as well. That's brilliant. And, and Nick, from yourself, any kind of top tips there around kind of avoiding the data challenges and really optimizing for that fifth V of value? I think Brad Brad covered that perfectly. <laughs> no worries. I, I, in, in terms of observations, at the basic level, I'm still seeing siloed data, especially in, in, in government organisations where they've almost dynamically created systems for their own needs and now they're struggling to integrate it. And whether it, it's those data architectures that Brad was talking about, a data mesh of some sort to be able to bring that together, getting insights and pulling data together has got to be top priority. Um, and making sure that it's secure and, and security is embedded throughout the access and, and control framework around it um, so that it's protected. You know, I think even going down to a personal level, whether it's kind of social sides or the way we interact with, with our day-to-day lives, making sure that data is secure is, is paramount. Just for one build, Sally, just if, if I may, just as, um, just picking up that, that security thing. The, 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 one of the biggest issues of, of, of data and the challenges of data is is trust and Trust in the data in, but also the risk of you losing or manipulating or giving the wrong data out. And, and data is a huge risk and a bold level risk for most because of the ethical challenges and the, the trusted nature of it to book your, your organization's reputation. And then if we build on that with you know, more progressive architecture, more progressive solutions, more progressive uses of data, artificial intelligence automates much of that and takes some of the human in the loop control or or, or decision making and um, uh, kind of out of that and we're seeing real prevalence of bias and ethics and and how organizations are starting to think about you know how have we made your data sets and your decisions bias free as much as possible um because i don't think there's any perfect answer yet on data sets to be able to bring into this but this essence of trust ethics and use of ai from those data sets that organizations have currently got as they start to be more progressive and innovative with their data sources i think is absolutely of the age and certainly has been a real a real conversation i've seen accelerate over the last six nine twelve months Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. And also a great example of organizations coming together. There's been a lot of development around AI kind of frameworks, haven't there? And um, and also looking at the human side of this as well, because I think sometimes that gets left behind in conversations because there's 180 odd human biases as well. So looking at potential baked in bias from, from the past, for example, another another really key, key area, but great points there. I couldn't agree more. It leads me on to, to look a little bit more about, you, know, you mentioned there different technologies. Um, what are you seeing overall, and obviously AI is coming right to the fore there, that are going to be the most vital you know, as we're preparing for becoming more adaptive, more ambidextrous organisations for the future? 
and thinking also of that role of security. And one thing that springs to mind just as I'm, I'm talking aloud here is we, we talked about security briefly, but also compliance and governance seeing a big role there. You know, about a thousand laws I think there are over the over the world at the moment just on that sector alone. And I know organisations are struggling a little bit to, to adapt and, and, and cope with that. And there's some AI automation that's coming into the fore that's making a difference there, just as one example. But I'd love to see your thoughts on that, on these newer technologies and how they're coming together to make a difference. From, from an AI perspective, uh, I mean, the, the speed of evolution has been something profound. I mean, it's really, AI is not new. It's been around for decades. The last couple of years since, you know, kind of, the massive increase of computing power and the accessible data that's available, open data, but also your know, organizations, the big organizations, the technologists, technology organizations in the world have, have kind of really pushed the, the boundaries of, of AI um, as they've built more potentially, you know, kind of harmful AI, you could argue, but certainly useful AI that's used day in, day out by everybody. You only have to look at Amazon Echoes or you know, Google Homes or other, you know, your mobile phones and, and you know, the, the various different search tracking kind of capabilities and enrichment technologies that have existed and then are used to, to feed those those engines and algorithms. And just and before we come on to the broader answer, it's a really interesting point around generally the doubling of compute power to create algorithms and enhance more progressive algorithms, which is generally kind of seen as doubling every four months as we stand at the moment, maybe just under where more advanced uses of AI are pushing the compute boundaries that brings with it other ESG and societal and sustainability challenges, which we maybe will come on to later as well. But um, the, the advent of technologies that come in the AI space, I think explainable AI, again, it's been around for a few years. I think mean, there's some really interesting um, advancements in how that's being used. And we're certainly looking at kind of adversarial networks to enhance the ability to discover bias and ethics, uh, ethical challenges, if you like, in uh, in AI as part of our explainable AI kind of agenda, and, and part of that ethical and bias kind of agenda that we're we're trying to make sure we're we're championing at the front to ensure your know, customers and consumers are are getting the very best of the the the, the services and experiences that customers are providing uh, by removing bias and removing you know kind of some of the the social uh, issues that data brings. So so I'd say you know, adversarial networks can cover many different boundaries and uh, again to generally sort of testing trust and trying to improve AI um, as uh, but they come with different different areas like GANs and generative adversarial networks which are uh, kind of also other forms of adversarial AI that, uh, that are used. I mean natural language understanding is also kind of progressing you only have to look at the advent of the GPT-3 and the more uh, on the larger network um, from from recently released from China but GPT-4 as it will come out in the coming months really is you know pushing that natural language understanding and you know we've seen Google search with through the latest releases of their search engine kind of algorithms as well starting to to, to be announced at the most recent Google um, conference this is becoming so powerful that it will transform the experiences that we already take for granted today and push that to the next boundary, the next level, to the point, I think, in the next five to 10 years, and there's lots of trends around backcasting and 2030, 2035 visioning, that I don't think people will even recognise how we interface and create data, create applications, experience language translation, experience the interface between technology and the human uh, and I think that absolutely will be something to watch out for. But the, the biggest issue of that is how do you ensure 
We've got safe AI, so this explainable AI, adversarial AI, and other such that I think is critical to ensuring that technologies like GPT-3, 4, and others are, are you know, kind of controlled and at least considered in the essence of, uh, of quality and how they're consumed in all corporate and, uh, and consumer and citizen experience. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. That's really, really interesting. It goes back to your point about trust as well. So en- enabling all those opportunities and their integration, but with the security to get that trust buy-in as well from, from you know all the stakeholders that will be involved in that. Absolutely brilliant. So Nick, just looking at digital transformation more broadly now, um, sometimes there can be this thing about, you know, the latest technology say, let, let's chuck that at the problem, you know, that, that will fix it. Um, and obviously that's not the best way to always go about things. So how do you ensure that organisations don't just throw something at it and, you know, bring together the other elements we've discussed um, here today around, for example, skills? That's a great question. And, and it's one that's very close to my heart, that the, the, the amount of times I've personally said to people, it's not just about the technology. It, it, it's all those people process and, and softer things um, which which are which are crucial. And, and going back to the example I gave earlier, that that organisation who had all the tech and, and all the the best buzzwords and widgets, but hadn't geared themselves up with the right process, people, and and, and maybe skills and culture come into that that same conversation um, to ensure that they can capitalise on the investments that they've made. Far often, the programmes that that we get involved in are technology focused. That they are move me from, uh, I'll keep it close to my heart, move me from data center A to the cloud or transform my app from a monolith into microservices. That's great if you just focus there, but there are, there's so much more in the business interface around it that needs to be enabled for it to be successful that often gets often gets missed. Um, the way that we gear that up and the way that we try, try to adapt for that is is through co-creation sessions with, with our customers. When, when we engage with a technology problem, we try, always try and take a step back and try and engage the business on what are the different perspectives on that problem. Have, have you have you got to the nub of, of why? If you ask why five times and then try and get down closer. And then you can unpick those those priorities in the business and the priorities in, in the in a business layer that need to be addressed by the technology rather than just focusing down there. It is exceptionally dangerous to do to do that. I think there was a, an analyst report a couple of years ago saying most cloud and technology programs fail because they haven't taken a service viewpoint. They haven't thought about the customer. They haven't thought about the business. They haven't thought about the, the why, the why statement, the priority statement. And so people rush and get the kind of magpie effect. They get drawn to the shiny technology. Um, but don't end up answering the real crux of the business problem that was that was sitting there just underneath all those lovely shiny things that people grabbed first. Absolutely, very very well put. You've got to start with with the problem or the mission, whatever you're trying to to address, and not the other way around. Absolutely, really well architected. That's brilliant. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate that. So, so just building on what Nick said, actually, I think um, if you think about what really matters in life, if you think about the experiences that are memorable, the things that you know, everybody looks back in, in their lives uh, uh, and, and remembers. It is about people, ultimately. And um, and I think we, we, are, we often overlook, we've talked loads about technology. I've rambled on about AI and fa- fancy technology widgets, and we've talked about cloud and all this stuff. But g- getting people to interact with each other, giving them the sense of purpose, giving real clarity of the mission, but but also just kind of working closely with people and together you know, through this kind of co-creation mechanism is so, so powerful. It is, you know, generally people that have kind of gone through the trenches and gone through, you know, the, the, diff- the difficult times come out much stronger and they build trust. So kind of people 
and trust, I think, is ultimately what creates these experiences when you're working inside an organisation. But if you think about the people side of it, the, the, the impact of you as a consumer also is a people experience. And you just expect stuff to work. You know, when your experience of, uh, of that, does, you don't care about what's behind it. You don't care about the conversational AI engine you're talking to. You just care about, does it give me the right answer? Does it give me the answer I want? Does it get me to the information fastest? Does it give me you know, the essence of, of, of the answer I want? in as quick period of time as possible, or in real time if possible. And, and I think we overlook this, and technologists, especially the DevOps community and people that are working and innovating on the back end, it's so easy to overlook the essence of outcome and purpose and, and people that kind of it's, we spend a lot of time in this mindset and culture and, and really trying to make sure that we build in the sense of service and experience and give people the ability to to, t- to test that regularly as we as we build these products and services with our customers. I mean, also input the advent of, if people have got an issue, that they, there's always a means of thinking about the service experience and the experience that consumer or citizen receives as the paramount kind of you know, output and outcome, which is the critical element of the innovation we're driving. And this kind of human-centric design or, or human element to to kind of the experience is absolutely critical. Uh, and I think uh, it is often, often overlooked. And, and we see this, especially with startups and SMEs and working with organizations is that they, they're all about tech, they're all about innovation, all about the latest widgets and gadgets and how do you integrate that to create an experience without really recognizing the experience and the outcome itself. So I think that people side and that sense of purpose and experience needs to be absolutely the forefront of everything we do and think about. Uh, and, and that drives its own you know, prioritization and pace and agility uh, that organizations are looking for as well. Well said. It's your three pillars again. I love that. Brilliant, Brad. Thank you very much. And it kind of, I'll come back to you on the next question, if that's okay, because it lends itself really nicely to, to think about how businesses have been adapting their digital transformation strategies overall. So kind of moving on this transition um, phase now from the pandemic, what are you seeing there in particular? The first six to 12 months of COVID was all about just kind of the urgency of you know, protect you know, the, 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 the immediacy of just, just get stuff to work, just get stuff out, out just kind of work, make sure we think about uh, about the immediacy of, of protecting and, and rescuing our organisation from from, uh, from from the pandemic. Uh, I think we've we've been through the last six to nine months and still we're still in it, I think, to a point. The essence of resilience and thinking about exploring processes, exploring um, people, exploring systems, exploring legacy technical debt and how do you uncover and, and free up the organization's resources and remove the risk of failure. Uh, and I think this this is kind of where organizations now are are starting to really focus. Uh, and that can be, you know, it can be, you know, let's remove that age-old, you know, legacy IT mainframe or other such data source that's that's there. Let's remove some of the applications. And we've got some great experiences of, you know, kind of halving the number of applications in customers' uh, in, environments. Um, you know, leading automotives, we've gone from thousands of four, four, four and a half thousand applications down to just over 2,000 over the last couple of years, just by, just to really reduce cost, but improve agility and simplify their, their estate and get more from the investments they're driving. But most of that's about freeing up the organization's resources, not just financially from operational expenditure, um, but the people impact of focused on operational run so that they've got more time to, to build the, and innovate the future and create the organization's more disruptive or digital or digital experiences 
that are critical to the long, longer term sustainable success of any organization. So I think um, I think we're just starting to, to enter um, the the next wave of kind of um, uh, more disruptive thinking. In I think we 18, 24 months ago, just before pan, the pandemic, this was at the forefront of most organizations' mind. But this essence of differentiation, disruption, digitalization, I think um, I think uh, organizations are now looking at that in a slightly different light and saying, right, actually we've accelerated our digital transformation five. Five, five or more years for, for some organizations over the last 18 months from where we were, let's look at right, where are we now and then look at how do we actually think about more progressive use of artificial intelligence and data sources and you know, enriching data and creating experiences that are memorable, that touch humans and touch the mindset of people. And all this stuff is kind of you know, now, now really um, in, the, in the forefront of organizations and boards' mind. And as a result, sort of the, the essence of using using cloud and using data and using innovation, uh, such as AI or quantum, are, are again are, are reforming and, and and really at the forefront of kind of uh, most most organisations tapping into this agile way of working and cross functional team working. So we get the essence of business and technology working together as one to drive more business differentiation and disruption into into the market. So I think that's that's where I see us right now. Uh, I think we've been on a journey. I think we continue to continue on that journey, but um, uh, I think it's a really exciting place to be. And certainly, we're seeing the market hot up with wars for talent like never before. The the you know, skills gaps um, are prevalent as a result of being able to deliver that next wave of progressive innovation. And I think uh, I think for those that are willing to to really embrace and work in a different way and, and learn and build their skills and and you know, embrace purpose. Uh, I think it's a super exciting market, a super super exciting place to be as a technologist um, in today's world, I think. I couldn't agree more. And in terms of their skills gaps you were talking about, they're kind of showing the purpose, showing what the purpose that tech can be applied to, I think can make a huge difference there. It really kind of changes the narrative about what a tech career can actually look like. So I, I just wanted to mention that because one of my kind of heart subjects, so to speak. So I love, I love that. I think that's really, really interesting. And couldn't agree more. Hugely dynamic time and also a time of reflection as well. You know, an organisation um, that I've been doing some work with in London, they're looking at, you know, the nature of space, you know, office space for the future because things have been so productive. And you know, can we use this in a different way going forward for, you know, more co-creative um, ideation type activity that's in person? And so just looking at the whole business models to support the the strategy is, is hugely interesting at the moment as well. What are you seeing in that area? The essence of that operational shift from cost and cost out I, I couldn't agree more so organizations are looking at property portfolios looking at reshaping their their fixed costs their long-term assets and looking at more you know changing their office space to be more co-creative and human-centric in, in in the essence of in the wake of covid but yeah it's another great example where there's huge amounts of savings to be had around travel and location costs which will all, all feed that this digital transformation engine or dis- disruption engine that I think is is the forefront of where we're now just heading into as a market sort of wave, if you like. Absolutely. I appreciate that. That's a great example. Totally agree. Totally agree. And Nick, are you seeing similar? Yeah, I, I think so. And I'll go back to what, what Brad opened with. So that first wave of let's just keep the lights on, keep people connected, keep people able to operate the kind of thousands and hundreds of thousands of, of remote working solutions that, that were, were stood up rapidly. I think that was the first one. The second wave, and Brad again said the same, was on, on kind of resilience. Um, I, I do a lot of work with the federal government down here in, in Australia, and it's a high compliance area, um, which has had a redoubled effort from, from what we've, we've observed. 
I think that the, the fear factor of the, the events which we never really foresaw have now come to reality. Um, and so people's need to want to feel more comfortable with them, their contingencies has, has increased. Australia's got a, a framework called Essential 8 for, for some of the basics, real basics in, in, in kind of cyber security and, and just basic best practice for, for secure environments. And it, it's simple things like patching and compliance and backup identity, those types of items. Um, and there's a, a wave of compliance programs to check. And, and there are some which have been left sitting there for a long time, haven't been, been updated, haven't been looked at, um, and need some love and care. And that, that's definitely a, a, a readable focus. And then the third wave is, is all around that flexibility, agility, call, call, call it what you will. How can we adopt and adapt so that we can be in a better place next time around? Whether it's uh, in, in kind of the federal government, I'll stay in the public sector space, whether it's more biometrics and border security, COVID, certainly in Australia, like I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in Melbourne here right now and I, I can't go five kilometres past my home. I can't certainly can't leave the state, can't enter another state, tracking support of people and, and, and enabling people to go about their daily lives, powered by technology is, is, a, is a huge focus. And even simple things like communication, how, how do you get the message through to, to, to the population about certain changes when it's such a dynamic ecosystem that, that we are making adjustments rapidly on our daily lives based on messages that need to be sent through. Um, and that last one is 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 uh, it's a previous example I mentioned as well that, that transforming the core, the core systems which support these ecosystems, whether it's public or private sector, it, it needs to be unpicked. We need to tune the business to the new reality, um, capitalize on any opportunities as they come in, and, and there will be certainly online retail and, and my Uber drivers have have, have been seen a peak, and then down when when times get tough, if if you if lockdown comes back into a certain area or more restrictions are put in place. If you don't have that adaptability in the in the business or in the the organisation or department, if it's public sector, then you'll struggle. And and I think we've got to the point now where the that all, all the basics have been done. We've proven we can go faster. It needs to become the norm, and, and adaptability needs to be built in as a as a top priority. Love that. And one thing as you were talking there, kind of just echoing our earlier conversation, the other thing I'm seeing as part of strategy development as well is organisations using, I'd like to call it like sphere of influence um, in a new way as well. So across that ecosystem you were describing, so going back to some of the like more social impact outcomes, um, you know, changing KPIs around those types of areas as well and looking for that return on like social impact investment, as, as, I, as, I, as I call it. So that's the other thing I'm seeing. That's becoming part of more embedded within strategy, whereas something that maybe was on the periphery in the past. So just love to mention that as well, because I think, again, that's an area we, we all care about. I love the fact that's come to the fore so much today already. That's brilliant. And uh, Nick, your point about the transforming the core, as, as you worded it there, what about the role of, of cloud as part of this? So I might ask two questions for the price of one here. So I'd just love to explore a little bit more about the cloud adoption journey. Again, it's something that was very heightened, um, particularly at the start of the pandemic. And I know there's a, you know, a lot of reflection going on at the moment about the best way to optimize the cloud investment. Um, but I'd love to kind of explore that journey and demonstrating the outcomes of cloud as well, what that looks like in you know, a successful application, for example. And I'll go to Brad first on that one. I mean, if you look at Again, a real-life example, cloud has been something that, again, m most organizations have got elements of cloud, whether they know or, or like it or not. So 
uh, whether that's in just SAS, SAS adoption from Salesforce service now or other such um, uh, Adobe marketing cloud, uh, or if you talk about cloud in the context of hyperscalers and you know running applications or infrastructure or data platforms, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google are very prevalent, especially in, in the West. Obviously, um, uh, I think um, the uh, cloud has been essential to unlocking the adaptability and agility and the cost. Uh, um, kind of saving potential for organizations. But in my experience, most organizations aren't optimized. They've not transformed or modernized their environments or are leveraging um, the benefits of, of cloud by, by looking at their applications and systems and actually starting to embrace more of the serverless and uh, uh, kind of removing the, the human cost, you know, freeing up that operational asset people to be able to innovate uh, by moving more services to, you know, kind of um, people zero touch or people less kind of managed services that are available from the cloud. Uh, and I think, uh, I think most have just moved existing systems or developed new systems, um, but, but those that are moved systems to the cloud are, are, are almost inevitably 30 to even 60 or 70% more costly or at least aren't benefiting by 30 to 70% of the potential cost savings and they could be by optimizing their current cloud implementations. And, and that's sort of proven from experience of working through many, many customers across the world. Um, so I think, uh, I think it's a huge area that I'm pretty confident to say, whether it's a new development or an existing, particularly an existing migration of existing applications to the cloud, the opportunities are inevitably in 30% plus savings if you start to think differently and you measure not just the direct cost of like for like of server to server infrastructure or you know terabyte to terabyte of storage charge but think about the broader cost saving opportunity and potential of your people your managed services partners your your your, your cloud um, services and support uh, organizations and and generally this is uh, the, the the more successful cloud cloud implementations are those that embrace more of the, the cloud native aspects, which ultimately mean you can start to tap into the real value of cloud. And that is the enhanced APIs and, and capabilities, the AIs, the data, the, the serverless capabilities, the business logic you can enhance your services and applications with. Uh, um, so, so, so my guidance generally is test you know, your and, and leverage partners that have got specialisms in cloud to be able to optimize your cost free up your best, most valuable assets, i.e. your people, to innovate. And then ultimately think about you know, leveraging organizations that have got real specialisms in cloud native to be able to enhance your applications and really tap into the value of cloud native technologies to enhance the experiences for your customers, consumers, and citizens. Brilliant, brilliant. I couldn't agree more. And the research is really consistent about those savings, those 30% plus savings you were talking about there. So it's that keyword optimization, absolutely. Totally agree. Nick, are you seeing similar? Yeah, so I think Brad Brad's answer to that was 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 spot on. I think I'll just echo it with a with an example. So I think the best examples I see of adoption are focused on something that's going to impact the business. It's going to be focused on something that's, that's going to turn the needle and, and give you an outcome. And, and I'll, I'll 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 use the example. So it's a private sector organization that I'm working with at the moment. They've recognized that as part of their supply chain organization, that they've got inefficiencies. Um, they think that they can increase their kind of model, their, their efficiency model by kind of 20, 25%. And for every 2% increase they gain, they will save 5 million annually. 
and they think they can they can make twenty percent, twenty five percent gains within that. So that, that that's a huge number to to play with, and it's going to impact the business. It's going to impact the way that their customers in, engage with them. Um, they're, they're, they're going to change the way that they do their their kind of B two B connection to be more API driven and open up to more potential smaller partners that they, they wouldn't see, and therefore change the outcome. It's not about lifting. Well, sometimes it is, but it's not not about lifting up a, a system and sticking it somewhere else. It's about, as Brad said, changing the way you architect it, the way you integrate it, the way you manage it, so that you can drive a better business outcome, and and, and ideally drive drive a better outcome for for the people that are consuming the services that you're offering. Could I just put another example on the back of that? <clears throat> I mean, in, in today's world, which is continuing to be unpredictable, the likelihood of future pandemics or unpredictable uh, uncertainties means you have to be adaptable. Cloud is the, the essential enabler for organizations to be adaptable and have flexibility in the commercials and cost base that means they can continue to adapt and adjust whereabouts their services are delivered and be able to scale up and down in line with demand. And this is critical. And if I think back, you know, kind of over the last year, one of our hospitality um, customers at one point furloughed 95% plus of their organization, which is, I think, something like 40,000 people uh, in strength. The only way this organization has survived, other than furlough schemes and, and governmental support, is by optimizing their cost base down to the point where they've got no customers. Therefore, they've got very little cost. The only way they could do that is by being, they're not quite cloud only, but they're not far off it, but really benefiting from the commercial nature and the benefits of cloud commercials. Um, My my general advice to most is that whilst it's not necessarily always possible to get cloud only, that has to be the target state for organizations for them to be able to deal with the unpredictability and uncertainty in the world today. Absolutely, that's a great example. And that ability to flux, um, for want of a better way of expressing it, that's come across um, really strongly, particularly um, from some of the SMEs that I, I did some recent research with Edinburgh University about, actually, that came to the fore you know, time and time again. So great examples there. Also, I think some interesting developments around cloud in the education space at the moment as well. So uh, again, so something close to heart there. Brilliant stuff, love that. Thank you both. And that brings us very nicely to the end of part one of our Agility special. Please stay tuned for episode two coming very soon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tomorrow's Tech Today. If you enjoy what we're doing, please subscribe to us and leave a review. It really means a lot. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram and see more behind the scenes video footage on YouTube. Thanks for listening.